Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. It's so great to be with you. I hope you're doing wonderful and had a fantastic Labor Day weekend. What a show ahead of us, starting off with this. I want to begin today with a deep dive into Bidenomics, as it's called, uh, and look at a few different things in relation to that, including talk about what economic metrics are we referring to when we say look, this is proof that Binomics is working. What are we talking about there? And we'll look at a few moments from a speech that Biden delivered in response to the August jobs report as we approached uh, the Labor Day holiday and a few other things as well. Always when we do segments like this, as I tout the pretty remarkable nature of the economic recovery we've seen since Biden has been president post the uh economic downturn caused by the pandemic, it's not to ignore the massive economic hardship that is very present still and the massive issues that are still unaddressed and all of the things that are so far from ideal with our economy. Absolutely the case. When looking though at the context of when Biden took over and the power a president has to influence their party and individually in his position as president, um, what has he done? How has that impacted the economic situation? based on the power that he does have um, and the time he's been president. So with all that being said, I do think there is a fair case to be made that he has overseen a very remarkable economic recovery. And we'll start with this clip from his recent speech. As we head into Labor Day, we ought to take a step back and take note of the fact that America is now one of the strongest job creating periods in our history, in the history of our country. And it wasn't that long ago that America was losing jobs. In fact, my predecessor was one of only two presidents in history who entered his presidency and left with fewer jobs than when he entered. Look, look at where we are now. Just this morning, we learned that the economy created 190,000 jobs last month. All told, we've added 13.5 million jobs since I took office around 800,000 of them manufacturing jobs. We created more jobs in two years than any president ever created in a four-year, single four-year term. And that is absolutely the case. Bizarrely, I see anytime Biden delivers speeches like this or in interviews touts these numbers, a lot of people within MAGA get super upset and rage at Biden for daring to tout the successes of his economic uh, recovery, or at least the recovery he's overseen. And again, another disclaimer, the president doesn't have full control over the economy, not even close, but of course they're going to take credit for a big recovery, especially when Biden did take steps and Democrats did take steps such as the American Rescue Plan to speed up that recovery. And thus the United States saw a faster, more effective economic recovery than comparable G7 countries, is currently experiencing less inflation than other G7 countries, kind of the comparable economies. And so uh, why that makes people who support Trump really upset other than them prioritizing partisan politics over the well-being of people, uh, I don't know. Very, very strange. But next clip before discussing further from the same speech. We faced some pretty tough times in recent years, a pandemic that took more than a million of our friends and neighbors million fewer people sitting at our dining room or kitchen tables, people we raised and loved, people we grew up with, gone. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. It wasn't that long ago 
that 20 million Americans were out of work. But the American people didn't give up. They never give up. They've never given up. And today we have the strongest economy in the world, the lowest inflation rate among the major economies, 13.5 million new jobs. And I'll stop that one there. I played it for you because I think it's easy to forget the context in which Biden took over as president. We were in a crisis and an economic downturn caused by the pandemic. And uh, it's pretty wild that within the time frame that Biden has been president, we've been able to go from that to where we are now. Again, so many problems still. But when judging the current economic state, I think contextualizing with that information and that reality that we were within uh, is really important. And what's funny is I think it really bothers people, as you saw in the first clip, when Biden points out that Trump is one of uh, two presidents in American history to have left office with fewer jobs than whenever he came into office because of the context of COVID. And it feels like Biden's ignoring that. That was because of COVID. Now, let's not forget that Trump mishandled that pandemic and caused things to be worse. But yes, of course, no matter who the president was, there was going to be an economic downturn because of the historic once in a lifetime pandemic and the necessary response to it and then the necessary uh, recovery from it. But then they are unwilling to acknowledge that same exact event when judging Biden. And we'll say all of these remarkable historic achievements when it comes to the economic growth we've seen don't matter because inflation. But inflation was and is happening worldwide based on the different variables put into play during the pandemic. And we're experiencing less severe inflation, still higher than we want it to be, but uh, much less severe than other G7 comparable economies. But when talking about Biden or judging Biden, gas prices and inflation, all of a sudden the context of COVID and all the different things that caused is out the window for the same people who want that to be considered when judging Trump's presidency and him being one of only two presidents to have left office with fewer jobs than when he took over. Let's consider the context for both. And with that in mind, again, Binomics clearly is working. And then one more clip here and then we'll discuss Binomics further. Next, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, which I might add not a single member of the other party voted for, we're making the most significant investment in clean energy and combating the existential threat of climate change that's ever been made anywhere in the world. According to outside experts, the Inflation Reduction Act is projected to create more than 1.5 million jobs over the next decade. So that's kind of, as we look forward, the impact of some of these policies um, over the next decade, even benefiting us when it comes to jobs, as he mentioned there. But then on policies further back, like the American Rescue Plan was attributed to have created years before, if ever, these jobs would have come back, millions of jobs during this recovery. So then the question is, did we strike the balance correctly? Are we going to sure um, kind of jolt back into good economic performance, but then a recession is going to hit us as people keep predicting? Or have we kind of properly uh, managed the landing from this crisis and then this recovery? And the labor secretary says we pretty much did it just right. 
This is a good jobs report. This is what you'd want to see if you're looking for a soft landing. Um, it's continued job growth. It is no longer that breakneck speed that we saw at the beginning of the recovery, but this is what the president has been talking about. When you reach a point where you've got slow, steady growth, we continue to have an unemployment rate that's less than 4% for the longest stretch since the 1960s. And as you mentioned, more people are coming back into the labor market. So you heard her use the term there, soft landing. And it does seem like we're going to achieve that soft economic landing post the crisis, post the recovery, where we did see very quickly everything heat back up, but the cooling off is at a speed that is hoped for. Because in a weird way, a lot of people who hated Biden were almost rooting for it seemed a recession where sure things kind of get back on track for a second or headed back in the right direction. But it was overdone and so things kind of fall back apart and we start backtracking and that just doesn't seem to be likely at least in the near future despite all the predictions of uh, doomsday being just around the corner and that is really good to see i have to know again it's not that everything's where we want it to be and there's so many things wrong we have to keep fighting to address those things as progressives but when it comes to the metrics we typically use we really are getting back on track and um are going in a really good direction which is hopeful. Now, when looking at that and trying to understand if people are saying in part, this is because of binomics, what is binomics? What is that ideology? What is that approach as it's been coined uh, with the name Biden? And CNN had an interesting piece trying to explain what the tenets of this ideology could be mapped out um, as or explained as. And I'll start with this. This is kind of contextualizing it against trickle-down economics, which is, of course, Ronald Reagan's coined term. Trickle-down economics, which was at the heart of President Ronald Reagan's policies and can, uh, continues to be the guide and light of Republican lawmakers, typically revolves around tax cuts for the wealthy and large corporations. Supporters say the benefits flow down to middle-class and working-class Americans boosting economic growth more broadly, but many experts dispute the effectiveness of this practice at lifting all boats. Biden argues that supply-side trickle-down economics has cost jobs and hollowed out the middle class. He has long focused on that group of Americans serving as chair of the middle class task force when he was vice president in the Obama administration. And then the article goes on uh, to say the three pillars of binomics as broken down by the Biden administration being making public investments in America, empowering and educating American workers and promoting competition. The obvious attributes of making public investments is the infrastructure law, the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, not being afraid to actually invest in these different beneficial programs that target especially working class um, and middle-class Americans, and then empowering and educating American workers, different provisions, especially in the Inflation Reduction Act to train people on the jobs of the future and then promoting competition, attempting to lower costs and uh, invest in small businesses and attempt to help them thrive. So it seems to be working. How much of that can you attribute directly to Biden, to Democrats more broadly? You can't exactly know. But clearly the predictions we've seen that the governance of the radical socialist or whatever will drive America into the ground is not accurate, as also highlighted by the historical record. Now, as things stand here over the last six presidents is net job creation. Clinton, Obama and Biden, 47.3 million jobs. 
Bushes and Trump, the two Bushes and uh, Donald Trump, 1.9 million jobs, net job creation. Now, there is a lot of context, COVID, you couldn't blame COVID for starting on Trump, all of that. Absolutely. Still a stunning chart, never the less. We will end it there. I had more to show you, but this segment is going on. So we'll stop there on Binomics. Let me know what you think. Former Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, uh, appeared on Face the Nation and didn't rule out running third party on the no labels ticket for president in 2024. And we have to circle back to this so that I can clearly say once again why this is such a horrible, 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 terrible idea. Before discussing further, um, I will show you this little clip from uh, this interview. The context, in case you missed some of this, is there's a third party group called No Labels, and Joe Manchin is considering a third party run in the 2024 presidential election on uh, that ticket. Larry Hogan is one of the co-chairs of this organization, and I guess he also is not ruling out that option. And what I've heard him say, and you'll hear him reference uh, reference this in this moment, is if it's Trump versus Biden again, which it's going to be most likely, then yeah, no labels is going to have to really heavily consider a third party run. They uh, advertise themselves to be kind of in the middle centrist, getting past the division. Um, but again, I'll address all of that after this. There's concern, especially among allies of the White House, that a Democratic independent ticket would pull from Biden. But let's let's be real. If Trump is going to end up looks like the nominee come January or February of next year, are you Larry Hogan open to being atop a no labels ticket as a Republican type candidate with no labels? It's not something I'm pursuing. I know it's not. We know you're not pursuing it. it, but it, it is it? Is it? At I'm least hoping we don't door? get to that point. I have not closed the door to that. If I believe that we can actually win the race, we have a strong ticket that those two major candidates are weak. We might have to try to pull off something that's never been done, which is sort of what I did in Maryland. There's concern. So it's just not the case that in our current political structure and partisan environment, a third party candidate would be able to be victorious in a national election, especially when no labels would be running its first national presidential election. That's just not going to happen. But what could happen is someone like Joe Manchin or Larry Hogan could siphon away necessary votes from Joe Biden's candidacy and hand the election to Donald Trump. And they are willing to call out the threat of Donald Trump to democracy, to our constitution, but then are considering doing something that could potentially help his candidacy. It's wild. And I wanna say again, their whole mission kind of plays into the idea that the extremism that is present in American politics is at the same magnitude on both sides. And thus, you got to split the difference and you're going to have to pick a candidate in between Trump and Biden or something like that. That is incredibly inaccurate and dishonest to play into that, because if you're wanting a moderate candidate based on our current political spectrum and polling on all these different issues and the voting that we see, the moderate option that kind of splits the difference of the country and is in the middle of the country is Joe Biden. No matter how much right-wing media says otherwise, it is Joe Biden. And he happens to be in the Democratic Party because right now the Democratic Party is taking up most of the moderate part of our political spectrum. But it is Joe Biden. And so then they're saying not that they, ha they should be the moderate option, but that they should be in between the super extreme option and the moderate option. Why? Why would you want to split the difference between really extreme and moderate? Why not just pick moderate? 
And a lot of people reject that because of the two-sided framework that if we're in a divided environment, then, and there are two major parties, then being in between the two parties would be the correct choice, right? But not when one of the parties isn't having extremists make it to positions of power. That's not happening. You don't have a Marjorie Green on the left. You don't have an equivalent. But one of the parties is being occupied by a lot of actual extremists. And thus, in this moment, it is moderate. It is middle of the road. It is reasonable to side with one of the two major parties. I happen to be more progressive within that party. But even if you're not, it still would be more in line with the moderate stance on American politics uh, to go with Joe Biden and all of these Democratic candidates over the extremism that, again, is not just out on social media as we see across the political spectrum, but is making it to positions of power within the Republican Party, which is the relevant part to our political conversation. And so Larry Hogan kind of distracts from that and makes it seem like the problem is equal on both sides by saying I should split the difference between the two sides, all while having to realize he couldn't actually win and thus only would serve as a potential spoiler candidate for Joe Biden. And maybe it wouldn't work out that way, but it could. And that's the danger. And it's also the danger with someone like Cornell West, as the uh, Brookings Institute reports on. It's much too early to assess the impact of this dual threat, but the early signs are not encouraging for Biden. A recent poll by Echelon Insights, a Republican-leading survey research firm, found that while Biden would narrowly defeat Donald Trump in a rematch of the 2020 contest, Cornell West would receive 4% of the vote in a three-way race, giving the edge to Trump West would draw about three quarters of his support from potential Biden voters, especially blacks, young people, and voters with graduate degrees. So if you're not familiar, uh, Cornell West is the third party Green Party candidate who's running right now for president, and he's to Biden's left. He is more progressive than Biden. So he would be likely taking people who could have voted for the Democratic Party candidate being Biden, but instead voted for Cornell West and at least according to that poll, would be handing the election to Donald Trump. And so anyone supporting the idea of Cornel West staying in until the general election has to contend with that. It seems to violate the principles you purport to have, but that's what is being said there. If Cornel West is not just going to do this for a while and then drop out before the general, if he's staying in until the general election, he is saying he's okay with handing the election to Donald Trump which is a horrible prospect. And again, seems to be against what people like Cornel West stand for, but we'll see whether it be Larry Hogan, Joe Manchin or Cornel West, I really do encourage all of them to not uh, allow for that very devastating potential situation. As Donald Trump is being held legally accountable for attempting to overthrow our democracy, many of his minions are as well. And it does take a while for this accountability to actually play out, but I want to update you on this when it comes to the Proud Boys, specifically the leader of the Proud Boys, or now a former leader, Enrique Tarrio, has been sentenced the longest sentence of anyone in relation to January 6th, 22 years in prison and he of course was a part of the plotting of very premeditated um, effort to overthrow our government and keep trump the president the proud boys had more of a pre-planned uh 
goal here than many of the other individuals who end up attacking the Capitol. And so accountability is even more necessary for them. And in this case, Enrique Tarrio, like I said, 22 years in prison here from ABC News, a federal judge on Tuesday sentenced former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio to 22 years in prison, the longest sentence to date handed down for any individual charged in connection with the January 6, 2021 attack, um, or I should say assault on the U.S. Capitol. Prosecution sought 33 years in prison, the harshest recommendation yet for someone charged in the DOJ's um, investigation into January 6th. And then moving along to more Proud Boys, CNN reports federal judge handed down hefty sentences against two members of the Proud Boys for their role in attacking the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. One who broke open a window to the building and another who took over the leadership role of the group that day. Their sentences both among the longest yet of uh, the over 1,000 people charged as part of the riot. And it's good to see that. As I said, sometimes it does take a while for this all to play out, but we've been waiting, especially with some of these individuals, like I said, that really had this uh, horrible plan to overthrow our government in the service of Trump's attempt to keep himself president, making sure that the precedent is set individually, I should say, just for them to be held accountable for their sake, but also the precedent being set for the future that this type of activity is uh, not something that is remotely acceptable, obviously. And then one of the Proud Boys, Dominic Pizzola, as he was leading the court, even though he had told the judge he was a changed man and was trying to portray himself as different, once he was actually sentenced, the judge left the room and he shouted, Trump won. 10 years. Tell us what happened. Yeah, this just happened in the past few hours. Dominic Pizzola, also a member of the Proud Boys, sentenced to 10 years. And as he was leaving the courtroom, our reporters who were in the court, they say that he raised up his fist and he said Trump won. Now, this was after Judge Timothy Kelly had already left the courtroom. But what's especially interesting about that is that he would do that. Apparently, he thought nothing. He thought he had nothing to lose because he'd already been sentenced to the 10 years. But previously, when he stood before the judge, he said, I am a changed and humble man. And the judge said, I do believe you turned a corner. But despite all that, after the judge left the courtroom and after the sentencing, he did insist that Trump won sort of in an act of defiance. So, you know, a lot of conflicting uh, narratives around these Proud Boy members. It is pretty stunning to think about these people who, because of their obsession with Trump and all of his conspiracy theories and their insistence that Trump won whenever he didn't, have now thrown their lives away. In the case of Enrico Tario, 22 years. In the case of uh, Pizzola there, 10 years, a life of negative ramifications because they chose to go down this path of defending Trump to no end and buying into all of his lies. And that is something that honestly, I just can't get my head around being that in a cult for someone who's just a political figure that you would plan acts of violence and then enact them in the name of that person based on evidence-free allegations of voter fraud and the election being stolen. It is pretty remarkable in quite the moment in American history. We talked about at the end of last week, Marjorie Taylor Greene's ultimatum on funding the government. She's saying she's not going to agree 
to fund the government unless President Joe Biden has an impeachment inquiry launched into him by House Republicans. And so as a condition of her going along with a necessary part of the functioning of our government, she is requiring a very partisan political attack against President Biden. The impeachment inquiry would be looking into the allegations they've been unable to substantiate for some time now that President Joe Biden was bribed and they like I said, have been investigating for months and months and years before that, even Lev Parnas, the stooge of Giuliani, tried to prove these things and now is turning around and saying, okay, this is a complete witch hunt. It's a, a wild goose chase. You're not going to find any evidence, but they insist there's something to it. And thus Marjorie Greene is making that a condition of her uh, voting for funding the government. And it's ridiculous, but we're used to it. Uh, Adam Schiff responded to Marjorie Greene's demand on this. He, of course, is the Democratic congressman and candidate for Senate in California. And I'll show you this. He nicely breaks down the absurdity. But first, in case you missed a segment um, on Friday or Saturday, whenever it was uploaded, here was what she had to say. I've already decided I will not uh, vote to fund the government unless we have passed an impeachment inquiry on Joe Biden. I will not fund the government because I will not fund the weaponized part of the government. I'm not going to fund uh, the Biden regime's weaponized government, so there should be no funding for Jack Smith, special counsel. We had to fire David Weiss, who was protecting Hunter Biden on a special counsel, and we have to rein the FBI. I will not vote for money to go towards those things. I will not vote for a continued resolution that funds mass mandates, vaccine mandates, and COVID because that's over. Joe Biden even declared that it's over, and last time I read line in the sand has always been, I will not vote to fund a war in Ukraine. We have to have peace, and of course, allowing Russia to uh, be victorious in their endeavor is not in the interest of peace, but she says otherwise. So I will be happy to work with all my colleagues. I will work with the Speaker of the House. I'll work with everyone, but I will not fund those things. And I thought it was most important for me to tell you all first, because I work for you and that's what we have to do. So that being said, here's what Adam Schiff had to say in response. Now, shutting the government down has implications on the public broadly. What, what is your reaction to her tying a government shutdown to an impeachment inquiry? Well, it just shows uh, the extreme lengths they'll go uh, to carry water for Donald Trump. Uh, they'll shut down the government. They'll do whatever they can uh, to initiate an impeachment of Joe Biden. And part of the motivation here is, of course, to distract from Donald Trump's multiple indictments. Part of it is to somehow try to dilute the stain of Trump's impeachments. Uh, but the common denominator is this just unswerving, uh, undeniable willingness to debase themselves in the service of Donald Trump. Uh, I think that many of them would like to shut down the government anyway. Uh, this will just give them further leverage to try to shut down the government. Having failed to uh, default on the nation's credit, uh, many see this as the next demonstration of their commitment to God knows what. Uh, so I, I fear that we're on a path to government shutdown because there are enough members of the Republican conference who want it, and Kevin McCarthy will do whatever it takes to remain speaker one more day or one more week. That's his sole motivation. And of course, he's exactly right. It's in service of Donald Trump's campaign. It's in service of the base's ambition to see President Biden gone after. And it's in service of this ideology that says the government can't really solve problems. So why do we care that much if it shuts down because of a lack of funding? And that's one of the things we talked about at the end of last week is that this kind of conservative anti 
government antisocial program stands creates a situation where lawmakers within the GOP are incentivized to further, if you want to use the terminology, break the government because a broken government plays into the story they tell of the government being ineffective at solving any problems. And it's not that the government's effective at solving all problems, obviously not, but where it can be effective, it should be implemented through good policies, such as all these different ones that have now become very popular, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, etc., etc. And so if you base a lot of your political ideology on, no, none of that can work. All these progressive programs that attempt to uplift people who need uplifting and support people where they need to be supported, those are all bad. And the government only makes things worse. And in every situation, it shouldn't be implemented. Then, of course, it's going to make sense for you to underfund certain programs, for you to be totally fine with uh, not doing the necessary process of funding the government to allow it to continue to function. And a government shutdown is actually perfectly uh, great in your mind. And a few Republican lawmakers have said that explicitly. You know, a shutdown wouldn't be so bad because the government doesn't do good things anyways most of the time. Which, of course, is ridiculous because so many people rely on necessary programs. And so that's not accurate, but it is the the ideology. And then that is being combined with kind of your typical, ah, why work hard to make sure the government can work effectively? Because if it doesn't, that actually supports our story better, our narrative better. But that's being combined with the desperate attempt to hurt Biden politically from Marjorie Green to kind of your complete... Uh, MAGA Republican package there, where now she knows there's a good chance it's not going to work. She's not going to get everything she wants, but her and some of the other people within the hardcore MAGA part of the GOP can demand things like this. And then maybe we get a government uh, shutdown and they get to hurt Biden or try to hurt Biden politically. And in their mind, that works out just fine. Meantime, people are being harmed because of it. Meantime, people aren't receiving the support and the service from the government that they need. So we'll see if this ends up leading to a government shutdown. Um, we'll see how many Republicans go along with uh, this or other attempts to make absurd conditions to their support for uh, funding the government, but very emblematic of the modern, especially MAGA Republican Party. Donald Trump has responded to his potential disqualification from the ballot in 2024, and I'll show you this response in just a moment. As a quick summary, I've done more analysis on this in the past. You can find the YouTube channel if you're interested. But a quick summary is that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment stipulates that an individual who was previously in elected office, who provided aid or comfort to or engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States, then is disqualified from being president um, in the future. And thus, that would disqualify if it applied to Donald Trump, him from even being president, separate from his legal case is separate from an election, just he would not be eligible, similar to if you're not old enough to even be president of the United States. Now, there is a constitutional question about that. And does his actions or do his actions on and around January 6th fulfill that requirement when it comes to what is stated in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? And that is why we'll just have to see how it plays out. We'll see if he does indeed get disqualified. Right now, secretaries of state are kind of grappling with this. Is he even qualified to be on the ballot? And we'll likely see this challenge all the way up to the Supreme Court if a secretary of state takes that step of taking him off the ballot. But while we await all that, 
clearly Donald Trump is already terrified about it because he's posting on True Social. I'll show you this, and then we will continue this segment to some videos he posted as well. Almost all legal scholars have voiced opinions that the 14th Amendment has no legal basis, Donald Trump says, or standing relative uh, to the upcoming 2024 presidential election. Like election interference, it is just another trick being used by the radical left, communist, Marxist, and fascist to again steal an election that their candidate, the worst, most incompetent, most corrupt president in United States history is incapable of winning in a free and fair election. Make America great again he finishes so it's not the case that all legal scholars have said that the 14th amendment doesn't apply actually increasingly even conservative legal scholars are saying indeed it does now i'm always going to be fully transparent i don't see him being disqualified i think that would just terrify anyone who could make that decision uh, who would have to enforce that but there's absolutely a justification for based on his actions on and around January 6th and supporting that rebellion against our democratic process and uh, the United States government. But again, I find it very unlikely. You can let me know if you disagree in the comments, but still what a moment to be playing out. And even the tiny percentage chance that it does happen terrifies Trump. Moving away from that conversation, just to his general rants though, he is now um, posting videos advertising his mugshot t-shirts. On November 5th, 2024, it's going to backfire again when we win back the White House and make America great again. I just want to thank you for your tremendous support. And here it is. If you want to go out and get it, you can go out and get it. Have fun with it. But people do like it, I must say. Thank you very much. Have fun with it. People of all different political persuasions are going to be wearing mugshot t-shirts, which is the funny part of Donald Trump. Some celebrating the accountability based on what he attempted to do in overthrowing our democratic process. And now he's seeing legal accountability for that. And some because they think he's the biggest victim in American history, even though that is not aligned with the facts. But next moment here from a video he posted, just as we discussed last week, raging constantly. At one point, 31 videos were posted in five hours on his true social account. Just pretty remarkable. Brave American patriots will be able in court to show how the presidential election of 2020 was rigged and stolen for those rhinos, radical left Democrats, communists, Marxists, fascists, and others who say, don't look back, look forward. They either do not want to reveal the answers because they got away with murder or are fools and cowards because we know that if we don't find out the reason, it could happen again, and we're not going to let it happen again. All of the fraud, irregularities, and cheating, we cannot ever let a thing like that take place in the United States of America. Thank you very much. So there, he's saying, I guess, the strategy in court will be to try to, as a defense against the charges relating to his attempts to overthrow a democratic process and keep himself president. He's going to argue, no, I'm not guilty of that because I still believe the election was stolen. And so he's saying this will be their opportunity to in court prove, even though they had 60 plus chances previously, that the election was stolen. And they're not going to be able to do that. So how he believes that would work out, I don't know. And I'm sure this is just public talk. This is not actually what he'll try in court, but I do almost encourage his lawyers to take the advice um, 
of their client and try to prove the election was stolen in court instead of putting up an actual strong defense. That would be disastrous for him. Uh, next video. I easily won the great state of Georgia in 2016. Did a fantastic job as president for Georgia and the entire USA. Received 10 million more votes than I got nationwide in 2016. Got by far the most votes in history for a sitting president, but shockingly lost Georgia. All this despite winning nearby Alabama and South Carolina in record-setting landslides. Why did Georgia officials agree to sign that horrible one-sided consent decree? Nobody to this day has figured that out. Does One-sided. It just so happened the one side was where all the facts were, but. Anybody really believe I lost Georgia because I don't? I do. Uh, and so does anyone who is able to analyze the evidence of the election. It's fascinating to see still, fascinating is an interesting word to use there, aggravating, stunning, disturbing, there we go, um, to see the amount of people who still are horrified by the idea that anyone would have perceived the 2020 election to be legitimate when it's their side that has had years now to bring forward convincing evidence to convince people otherwise and they haven't and so the fact that that's still the line he gets away with using of just could you believe i lost georgia <laughs> without actually bringing forward any contradictory evidence it's just uh a horrified tone of voice that's it that bolsters his storyline and also sometimes he'll throw in i got more votes in 2020 than i did in 2016 so how could i have lost well because biden got more than that that's sometimes what happens in elections you do pretty well and the other person does really really well and that's exactly what happened and it was a historic moment where you had mishandled epic proportions uh, once-in-a-lifetime pandemics so something pretty stunning happening actually is predictable in such a stunning moment and that's what happened and you lost but still just saying can you imagine me losing is enough to rowdy um or i should say rowdy rile up a lot of people pretty crazy then this security tapes from mar-a-lago that evil and sinister prosecutor deranged jack smith leaked or otherwise stated were deleted or altered, were in fact not deleted or altered at all. In fact, I didn't even have to give them. These are my tapes. I gave them openly and freely. It was a fake story put out by these government thugs. That's what they are. They're government thugs. They're bad people. Those tapes were openly handed over without protest or litigation. I didn't have to do that. And then the deranged one, Jack Smith, makes me look as bad as possible by leaking fake stories about we altered the tapes. No, they now admit the tapes were not altered. The whole case is fake because I come under the Presidential Records Act. Biden and Mike Pence don't. <laughs> as I say, if that's his defense, best of luck to him, I guess. That is a disaster just it's fake news it's fake what about biden what about mike pence it's fake now i do expect this to just be what he's saying publicly and something completely different in court but if he did bring that and also in the other cases the election was actually stolen in as his defense yikes indeed
We will wrap it up there for today. I do want to note that I'm currently working on, and this I'm trying to make sure it doesn't too much, but it may be conflicting with the show daily. And again, I'll try to make it seem as seamless as possible. But over the next week or so, I might seem a little bit all over the place because I'm working on a project that is related to the show that is going to be probably a lot of y'all's favorite thing I've ever done. And it's one of my favorites. It's going to be very interesting and some fascinating content for sure. Separate from that, I'm also traveling on Friday to an event to interview, uh, interview more Trump supporters at one of Trump's speeches. So a whole lot going on and I'm really excited. Sometime next week, probably I'll be able to tell you what the big project is that you guys will hopefully love. But with that being said, I will see you all tomorrow.